try to do the impossible this morning. We're going to fly at 33,000 feet above these scriptures to get uh, a picture, three different snapshots this morning of the life of Jesus, one of which Professor Leach read, and two more following that. So we're not going to take them apart intricately because my purpose this morning is to give you, if possible, a fresh look, a jolting look at the person of Jesus Christ. We've talked about, in the last few chapels, we've talked about the fact that God made an appearance on planet Earth in the person of Jesus. That begs the question then, what is God like? According to the Gospel of John, what you see in the life of Jesus, you can presume, according to that author, is true of God himself. Because God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to reveal himself to us. So I want to look at three passages and try to get three different snapshots. One that I think are... Uh, very graphic and very challenging and completely extraordinary and surprising. The first one is the one that Professor Leach read. It's a fairly simple and straightforward passage at one level. It's a very complicated passage at a theological level because John is beginning to weave, as he did in the first chapter, the first part of the first chapter, themes that he will carry out throughout the rest of his gospel. But it just a cursory view, Jesus is seen by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was this wily, almost crazy-looking man who went outside Jerusalem, outside the holy place, and called all of the Israelites, the people who thought of themselves as the chosen people, he called them out of the holy city to the simple Jordan River to be baptized, that is, washed for their sins. Now, the only people that were washed for their sins in that way in those days were the pagans who wanted to then become Jews, true believing people. So in one fell swoop, as one author puts it, John excommunicated the entire nation of Israel. He said, don't just stay there in your little temple, reminiscent of the great prophets of old. Don't just say the temple, the temple, the temple, as Jeremiah put it. He said, you're going to have to come out here and you're going to have to undergo a water washing, a baptism, just like the pagans do to come back because you've strayed so far from God. That was John the Baptist. He said things like, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. He called people vipers. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath? He was a wild sort of person. And some of the early followers of Jesus were first followers of John the Baptist. Jesus chose himself, ironically, to go out and be washed by John the Baptist, baptized. John the Baptist sees Jesus walking along and several of his own disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, that is, are with him. And John says, look, now there is the Lamb of God. A symbol from the Old Testament on one day of the year they would sacrifice a lamb on the Passover so that all of the wrath of God would pass over the people and he would see the sacrifice of the lamb. So when John points to Jesus and says to his disciples who've been following him in austerity and in fasting and in solitude 
he points to Jesus who's walking along and says, Now there's the Lamb of God. They immediately take off and go and follow Jesus. And this marks a change in the life of John the Baptist. He was the most powerful and popular preacher in centuries. And from this moment on, he begins to lose his followers to Jesus. But when asked about that later, he just said, I told you so it's okay. I told you it's okay. In fact, I have to decrease so that he can increase. He wasn't an empire builder. He decided to build the kingdom of God. It's interesting to note how few of our own ministries and organizations go out of existence once they've served their purpose. We have a way of self-sustaining and perpetuating things that should have died a long time ago, at least in terms of their original purpose. But not so with John the Baptist. These two disciples lead John the Baptist. One of them is unnamed, and many scholars think it was John. They leave John the Baptist, Andrew, and let's say it may have been John, and they follow Jesus. And, and the simplicity of what Jesus says to them is powerful. They come to Jesus and, and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? And he just says, come and see. He first asks them a question. He says, now what is it you want? And I think the writer of the gospel was saying, now what is it? you followers, you, you seekers of truth, really do want. And then he says, they say, well, Rabbi, where you're staying? In other words, they're saying, we want to be with you. And he says, well, then come and see. And it says they spent, they went and they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was a day that completely transformed their lives. Come, see, and stay. A very simple pattern of following. You're going to hear me quote from Raymond Brown quite a bit this year because I, I try to pick one primary source as well as others that I study uh, when I'm studying these passages. And uh, Raymond Brown's two-volume uh, commentary on the Gospel of John is going to be my primary uh, commentary, though I'll be using others. But Dr. Brown says that following Jesus is the primary image for the idea of a dedicated disciple. The literal act, if I stepped down here and, and, and I said, I want you, this whole front row to follow me, it'd be very simple. You'd know exactly what I meant. You would just come along behind me. Now, if I said, I want you to follow me with your entire life, then it would be a little more difficult. It'd be a bit different. You'd say, well, we're trying to learn from Bart the manner of his life so that we can imitate it. Well, Jesus just simply said, follow me. Come and see. And they followed him. And the rest of their life was a life of following, getting closer and closer on the heels of Jesus. But Jesus started with people who were already seeking the truth. And he called them to himself, and he called them to each other. What did Andrew do after he'd stayed one day with Jesus? He went and got his brother. He couldn't wait to bring his brother to Jesus. It just simply says, in very stark language, he went and he brought his brother to Jesus. And he said, we found the one of whom the law and the prophets have written. And he brought uh, Simon to Jesus. And Jesus gave him that great name change and called him Rocky. Right at the start in the Gospel of John, Jesus marks out the fact that he was going to make Peter into the person he was meant to be. 
And in those short verses, you have six of the early followers of Jesus. John goes and gets his brother James. Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon. Jesus takes the four of them up to Galilee from, from Judea where he was, all the way up to Galilee. They find Philip, and then Philip finds Nathaniel. Six of the early followers of Jesus, all from a very similar caste, all from two towns very near one another. I think it's highly unlikely myself that they did not know one another, at least these six. Obviously, two of them were two sets of brothers, and some of them were in business together, we're told in the synoptics. Jesus took the natural relationships and wanted to form them around himself and transform them into something new. Now, what was that something new? It's astoundingly different than what we do. What he formed them into was a family, sweet and simple. He, he formed them into a family with himself as the elder brother and with a father of whom he would teach the rest of his life to them. He didn't start an organization. He didn't start a corporation. They didn't come up with a, a, a contract or a statement of mission. They didn't apply for tax-exempt status from the Roman Empire. They didn't come up with a board of directors. Jesus, first and foremost, is not in the business of calling us to institutions or organizational structures. First and foremost, he's calling us to himself. And secondly, to one another, that we might learn about his father. When I uh, was younger, I started working in the organization of Young Life. And when they, they asked me to work in Young Life, a man named Don Reverts, who was a mentor to me for uh, probably 13, 14 years, a wonderful man in Christ, I was a sophomore in college at the University of Denver. Looks like we're losing our lights here, huh? Are we losing our lights back there? Okay, we'll just live with it. I was a sophomore in college, and, he, and my roommate and myself came to a meeting. And it was a fellowship meeting. I was at the University of Denver, and in, in the 60s, the University of Denver was not known as a bastion of faith in Christ. Every single professor I had for all four years ripped to pieces, except for one, ripped to pieces Christianity, Christian teaching, and the followers of Jesus Christ. Every single one. So I was going to this Young Life meeting not because I was interested in starting Young Life. I was going to survive. I just wanted to be around some people who believed in Jesus, and I heard that these folks did. So we met in the basement of Don Reverts' house, and there were about 60 people who had come from five or six universities all over the state of Colorado. Some had driven two and three hours to get there because they just wanted to be with people of faith. I went to that meeting to be with Jesus and to be with Jesus' friends and family. I didn't go there because I wanted to work for the organization of Young Life. Now, I wound up working for the organization of Young Life for 13 years following that. The very first night we were there, he said to my roommate and myself, would, would, you and the, uh, would you guys like to start the Littleton Young Life Club or restart it? And uh, we said, well, you know, we're just sophomores. We don't know. We don't know a whole lot. Sorry, sophomores. And uh, he said, well, why don't you pray about it? And we thought, okay, we'll pray about it for a couple weeks. And he said, in fact, why don't you pray about it right now? 
And we said, okay, we'll be happy to do that. He said, why don't you go in the other room and pray about it and then just come back out and tell us what, if you're going to do it. <laughs> and uh, so we couldn't believe it. So, so there's 60 people in the one room while we go out and pray, and they're praying for us, and we're supposed to come back with an answer. Now let me tell you, I was not deciding to join the organization of Young Life. I was trying to decide if following Jesus for me and for my roommate Ed Kent's meant taking on this mission and being with these people and trying to lift up Christ. We decided it was. And 13 years of my life was spent in, in lunchrooms in high schools and Mr. Sizzler's telling high school sophomores about Jesus Christ. I met my wife in that, in that mission of young life. We raised our family around it. Those people became intricate. But when I left young life, about 15 years ago or so, nothing really changed. Because I was not first and foremost identified with an organization. I was first and foremost identified with Jesus and his family. And the fact that I took off my Young Life staff hat and put on a pastor's hat didn't change anything in the family. The family of Jesus. Jesus is calling us to a family, not first and foremost to an institution. Now, the second passage I want to look at today follows right from that. Remember when he found Nathaniel and he said, now here's an Israelite in whom there's no fault. And, and, uh, and Nathaniel was completely amazed. And frankly, I, I haven't figured out in the passage what he was amazed about. Scholars throughout the centuries have tried to guess and, and, and surmise that maybe Jesus knew what he was thinking about when he was under the tree. And that amazed him that he knew uh, I, I, for one, just can't quite figure out what it was. But whatever it was, it amazed Philip to the point that he could respond to Jesus in faith. And Jesus said, look, if you're going to respond in faith over a little thing like this, just wait because you're really going to see some great stuff. And he didn't have to wait long. The very next passage says this. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, weddings in those days usually lasted seven days from Wednesday through the next Tuesday. And they were wild and joyful and exuberant affairs. And Cana is a very small town. Most the scholars think it's about nine miles from where Jesus grew up. A very small town, off the beaten track. And perhaps it was one of Jesus' relatives that was getting married. We don't know. That's been a conjecture. But at any rate, his disciples, his new ones that he just called together, hike, hike all the way over to Cana. They show up for this wedding, and here's what happens. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother came to Jesus and said, They don't have any more wine. Dear woman, why, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. A theme John will take throughout the rest of the gospel and, and build to a climax when we see that the hour of Jesus was his death, his passion, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. He says, that my time isn't here yet. And then his mother said, I love this, do whatever he tells you, she says to the servants. It seems to me Jesus is saying, Mom, I don't want to get involved. And she just turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. I know my boy will come through. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So we've got about 100, between 120 and 150 gallons of water sitting in these large stone jugs that are used for, for ritual ceremonies by the Jews that would wash away their uncleanness so that they could uh, go into the ceremonies of their religion. And he says, uh, fill those jars with water. So the servants, they go and they do it. Then he tells them, now draw some of it out and take it to the master of the banquet. And it's interesting to me that the servants did it. I don't know if I would have. I mean, they're out of wine. They're not out of water. And to take it up in the midst of the festival to the master of ceremonies, who is probably the, the best man, as we would call it, probably the best friend of the groom, at the moment when there's a tremendous embarrassment in this poor family for the wine to run out was a symbol that, that they, were, they were so poor they, they, they couldn't even throw a good party for their friends when their son or their daughter was getting married. It was a tremendous social embarrassment. And they take the water up and of course you know what had happened. Somehow that water had turned into wine. And not just wine. Really good wine. Vintage wine. Reserve wine. He took it up and, he, and the master of the ceremonies tasted the water that had now turned to wine. That's the first time we know that it had turned to wine in the way John tells the story. And he did not realize where it had come from. So as far as he's concerned, he just gets a goblet of incredible wine. Just when he thought maybe something was going sideways in the joyful celebration. And so he calls the bridegroom aside and he says, everyone brings out the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best until now. And then John says this, this, the first of Jesus' miraculous signs, he performed at Cana in Galilee and thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their trust in him. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the Messiah, I wouldn't choose a backwater town and a little poor wedding to pull off my first sign to the human race that the messianic era of peace and joy and salvation had arrived. I would have come up with something a lot different. I would have done it in the temple. I would have done it right in the center, in the heart of the city where everybody could see it, where people could say, a new era has come. John the Baptist got us ready, and now the new era is going to break out. But Jesus didn't do it that way, and he seldom does things our way. Isaiah says God's ways are not our ways. He chooses a poor neighborhood to do a... a a miraculous sign of provision and grace for a poor family. And best I can tell, only the servants and Jesus' mother knew what had happened, as well as his disciples who were watching very closely. Now, the irony is that John says this is how his glory was revealed. The glory of the one God was revealed in this little backwater town in an unseen miracle that only a few people noticed. How can that be? Because God doesn't think like we do. He doesn't first call us to an organization. He calls us to a family. He doesn't do his first miracle right where everybody can see. He does it where they can't see it, to take care of the real life needs of a person. I married two of my children this summer. It was a, it was a great summer. 
My daughter got married. My son got married. They were both granola weddings. One was held in a pasture in Moscow, Idaho. Byron brought his guitar and did the music. The altar was a bale of hay. My daughter's was on a beach on Whidbey Island where all of the bridesmaids were barefoot and the bride. And yes, I married her in my Birkenstocks. Where they didn't have a flower girl, but instead they had a flower dog. It's true. Zeely the Wonder Dog. And I've got to tell you, they were the two most enjoyable weddings I've ever been at. I've been praying for these weddings since they were born. I've been praying for their future spouse since they literally were delivered in the delivery room. And so this was the culmination of Linda's and my prayers for 23 and 21 years. And it was a joyful occasion. It's real life, complete with blue folding chairs from the Lutheran Church on the south end of Whidbey Island, driven up in a rental truck that morning by moi. You see, that's real life, isn't it? That's where we live. We live in the giving away of our family and in the incorporation of others. It wasn't, it wasn't in the midst of a cathedral. It was in the midst of real life that Jesus decided to perform his first miracle and take care of a poor family that didn't quite have enough. Well, right after that, he goes into Jerusalem, third snapshot. He goes from Cana up in Galilee, and he comes down to Jerusalem. Now, finally, a Messiah who will do it my way. Now, finally, a Messiah who will walk into the temple in silence, with reverence. Who will have his Bible verses around his wrist and around his head as the Jews, Orthodox Jews, as we would call them now, those days did, who would walk in by the wailing wall, who would pray, who would, who would read with reverence the scriptures, who might stay there for days on end fasting. Now finally, a Jesus who will do this thing that we would expect a Messiah, the Son of God, to do. Come to the holy temple and do homage to his Father. But Jesus walks into the temple... He sees that the sellers of doves and pigeons and ox and sheep who were selling them to pilgrims for sacrifices had moved into the temple courts and they were exchanging money because people came from all over the world to worship in Jerusalem and they had to change their money from this currency to the temple currency because no foreign currency could be brought into the temple. It was thought of as a sacrilege, as an idol because it had the picture of an emperor on it or something along those lines. And there were money changers going about their business, helping pilgrims do their sacrifices. And Jesus, you would have thought, would have come in, purchased the sacrifice, offered a sacrifice like a good Jewish person would do at that time, and show his respect for this central institution in his faith, the temple. But you know what he did. But it's astounding, isn't it? Imagine if you didn't know. He walks in... And John adds the little detail that he fashions a whip. And he goes up to one of the tables. He gets underneath it. There's a guy exchanging money right here. He gets on the end of the table. He goes like this and throws it up. And the money goes shattering all over across the stones. 
And then he pulls out this whip and starts whipping the animals and getting them to start running and trampling around. And people are going, what's happening here? And then he starts yelling, get these things out of here. You, you, you've turned my father's house into a, a den of thieves, as it's put in one of the Gospels. Get these things out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? It says that later his disciples remembered the scripture from the Psalms that said the zeal of, of his house, of God's house, would consume him. Interesting that the psalm said had consumed him, and John quotes it as will consume him. And in fact, I think it was a foreshadowing of the fact that this very act in the temple would later consume him in death, that he crossed a line with the religious establishment. The other gospel writers put this at the end, right before he goes to the cross. John places it in the beginning, saying he crossed the line right at the start. So we've got a Jesus who calls people to a family, not to an organization. We've got a Jesus who changes water into wine instead of wine into water, which is probably how some of our denominations would do it today. We've got a Jesus who goes to the ordinariness of life to perform his first sign and goes to the religious center and gets out a whip. What kind of a man is this? I can tell you this, he's not the flannel graph Jesus we all learned about. I want to ask five questions to close. Are you like the disciples of John the Baptist who were seeking the truth even before Jesus came on the scene and became real? You see, Jesus is looking for seekers. If you are like those early disciples of John, are you adaptable enough when you see Jesus doing something differently to leave John and to go with Jesus, to leave the austere life and to go to a wedding, to leave the fasting and start the feasting? Or if he calls you to do it the other way, are you willing, can you adapt and change your religious traditions to fit the living Son of God? Three. Are there institutions in our lives or customs or personal traditions which, as Raymond Brown says, are barren? They're not yielding the good and the love and the beauty and the joy and the life and the vivacity of Jesus Christ. Are there traditions in your life that have become so barren that they simply need to be changed, not reformed? but turned upside down for some new wine to enter some of your old wineskins. Four, are we, like Jesus, content to do great things in quiet places where few people will notice them? You know, of all the spiritual disciplines there is, I think the one that Jesus guaranteed will bring spiritual growth is if we do small things faithfully. Are we content to do the unnoticed thing? Are we content to go to Cana in Galilee, change water into wine that nobody knew what had happened but a few? And fifth and last, what is it in your life today? What is it in your life today 
this Monday, not your neighbor's life, not the student's life next to you, not the professor's life over there in your classroom or here in the chapel. What about your life, whether you're a professor or staff member or student or preacher? What is it in your life that has the stink of sheep and goats and money changers about it and that the only answer for is a whip and the upturning of a table? What is it that's crept into your life ever so quietly ever so sneakily, and even now has become so accepted that you don't even recognize it as taking you away from the life of God. What is it in your life that Jesus would get out the whip? Not to whip you, but to chase this out so that you can enjoy life. Jesus said simply, come, see, follow, stay. Are we willing to come to Jesus to see how he operates, to stay with him long enough that we begin to operate through his spirit like him. Or do we do it our own way? Let's pray. Father, help us to come to Jesus at a deeper level. Help us to see Jesus with more clarity and sophistication. Help us to follow Jesus in the ordinariness of our own lives. And lead us to Cana where we can see your grace and provision given unnoticed in a backwater place. And lead us to the temples of our lives where custom and tradition and other obstacles have obscured the wonderful life of your Son. Give us the humility to let you upturn those tables. Help us to be people of the family of Jesus, with a Father like he taught us about with Jesus himself as our elder brother, with one another as brothers and sisters in the family, and with a goal to envelop the entire world in his loving and graceful fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.